0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one there on the chairs. It's page 531. Really encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you at all times. We refer to it often. Have you ever made something and then a short time later, somebody came along and just tore it down? Maybe they did it by accident Maybe they did it very, very intentionally and maliciously. Or maybe they didn't do it physically. Maybe they did it with words. They just utterly tore apart everything that you've done with a critical and hostile spirit. How'd that make you feel? Feel encouraged, built up, feel happy? I doubt it. Maybe angry, frustrated, sad, disappointed. If we're honest, maybe a little... Hatred towards that other person. What if you tried to then rebuild that thing only to see it happen all over again? The same person doing it again. Now how do you feel? This is a regular occurrence in our home. We have seven people live in our house. Five kids, two adults. What that means is if anyone is awake in our house, if anybody is up, there's at least someone who is making something. creating something trying to maintain, beautify, bring order into chaos. You know what I'm saying? It could be anything. It could be an art project, it could be making a meal, it could be building a fort. It could be doing things like trying to clean up a mess or write a sermon or build a, a, a masterpiece with Legos but it's a given in our home if if people are awake somebody is making somebody's creating somebody's building and and of course then there's everybody else right and so for every person that we have that is seeking to create and beautify the world around them there are others who do not share the same hope who do not share the same vision who do not share the same ambition and what do they do they bring destruction right? Now you can imagine what ensues, right? War, hostility, division, animosity, anger, and if we're honest, in that moment, a deep, heartfelt hatred. When it comes to the train table, Will is Sir Topham Hatt, and Cole is Godzilla, right? Right? And with regards to not confu- causing confusion and delay and or mass destruction, Sir Topham Hatt hates Godzilla. Right? It's a given. Now, why is that the case? Well, it, you know, of course we're, we're selfish. Of course we want our own ways and, and we fail to love others as we should. But if you go deeper than that, if you go down below that, there is a good desire there. We were made to be productive. We were made to to create order, create creativity and productivity and production. That, we understand that as good and destruction as evil. There's something deep within us that knows that, that we understand that, that God has, has made all things and he has given us a, a job as his creation to either expand or maintain good things. And those good things are to be cherished. But those things that work against God's good designs, well, they are meant to be abhorred. We understand this. My kids get this. Now, I think it's easy for us to understand that when it comes to tangible things. Like we, we would say, boy, it, it would be a travesty if somebody were to set like the Mona Lisa on fire or even somebody coming along and, and just even quite simply destroying a train table. But it's, it's much more difficult for us to understand and, and, and appreciate and value and want to protect and maintain those things that we cannot see. Things like peace, love, truth, or unity. God made those things too. And in Christ, he remade them. How do you think God feels when we seek to destroy them? When we seek to undo what he has made? Especially this unity that he has created among his people. Now, not to make God sound like a fearful, selfish, incapable and sinful three-year-old, because he's not, he's the God of the universe, all wise, sovereign, good God who made and sustains all things. But how do you think he feels about it? Well, Proverbs chapter six, verses 12 through 19 are, are gonna tell us, and, and what it's gonna say to us is rather shocking. It says he hates the one who sows discord. He hates it. Why? Because God made us, and in Christ, he remade us. Made us for unity. Made us to experience love and peace and truth with each other. And so those who seek to dismantle it are abomination to him. God abhors them. The one who sows discord and seeks to destroy what God has made has set himself up against God. So God hates the one who sows discord. Or to word it just a little bit differently, what we're going to see, the central truth conveyed in this passage, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, is that God hates discord because we were made for unity. God hates discord because we were made for unity. And so with that, let's turn our attention to the passage, Proverbs 6, Verses 12 through 19. It says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers." While this passage lists off many sins against God and against each other, they can really all be summed up in the second line of verse 14 and the second line of verse 19, this one who sows discord. This is a warning to us not to be divisive, not to make trouble or cause dissension and quarrels among God's people. And so just like we did last week with the sluggard, we first need to take time to understand What this malicious person is like. And quite honestly, as we begin to unpack his character, his behavior, his heart, we'll start to see the one who sows discord in all of us. And as we do that, we'll then turn our attention and place our hope in the one who sows unity. And so first, the one who sows discord A person who sows discord is a troublemaker. He's sneaky. He's disruptive. He likes to quarrel and fight. He enjoys stirring up strife and contention between other people. His goal is to create divisions and dissension, to turn people against one another, Or to get them to take sides against one another on issues. He wants to persuade them to put themselves, their ideas, their desires, their longings first ahead of everyone else. To separate or at least, if nothing else, to get them to question or to doubt one another. Whether you realize it or not, this happens all around us. It's in the taunts of the mean girls that you see in the lunchroom cafeteria. It's in the bias that we see in news reports or on television. It's in the politicians that play both sides of the field against one another. It's there in the heavy-handed, opinionated, uninformed thoughts of your friends on Facebook. Whether you realize it or not, we come into contact with these dissenters every single day. People who exploit their freedom of speech through any social platform that they can find, to speak their minds and to pass their judgments regardless of truth, regardless of others, regardless of the heart of God. Friends, we live in a culture that is primed for this. It comes to expect it. It's just good entertainment. We are entertained by boisterous, opinionated cynics, brashly speaking their minds. And if we're honest, we're also quite entertained by their downfall. relativism, minimization of truth, radical individualism and the social media of the day has taken what used to be whispers in dark corners and given them a global audience that in a matter of moments can destroy the lives and reputations of others. This is huge. And we suck it up. We love it. But friends, it's not just out there In the world. This same attitude, this same heart wreaks havoc in our homes. And breaks relationships. It divides Christian congregations. It's been right here in this church. It wasn't that long ago that we had to discipline a young man. Because of this same thing. But you know, it's something that we all have to fight against every single day in many, many, many subtle ways. So we need to understand and examine ourselves in light of this often undetected and overlooked sin. So, who is this guy? This one who sows discord. Well, God does not mince words about his character. Look there in verse 12. In verse 12, he calls him worthless and wicked. You know, where Proverbs makes a joke out of the sluggard, Proverbs speaks very, very sternly towards the one who sows discord. Some other ways uh, to describe this worthless and wicked person. He's a naughty scoundrel. He's useless. He's good for nothing. He's a man that is so full of sorrows and misery that he can't help but spread it to everyone and everything else wherever he goes. Quite literally, he is a man of Belial. A word that is picked up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 to describe Satan himself. What does the one Christ have to do with Belial? His character is satanic. It is opposed to God. It is opposed to all that is good and right and true. Now, before you just dismiss this and run off and say, you know what? I'm no satanic scoundrel. He's not talking about me. Let's just keep looking at him, let's keep looking further. Look at his behavior. This passage presents him in terms of body parts. Look at his mouth there in verse 12. He goes about with crooked speech. This is perverted speech. Not just perverted and just always thinking about just you know, sexual immorality, but just twisted, deformed, wrong, false speech. It's a skewing and a distorting of God's truth about anything in order to advance my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own agenda. This would include everything from exaggerations to false doctrine. From gossip, even the gossip that comes in the form of prayer requests. Well, you know, I just think you need to know about so and so. They're really struggling right now, and you just need to pray for them. All the way to promoting wrong views of things of God, topics such as sex. It's crooked. It's not straight. It's not upright. It's not speaking in a way that is consistent with God's creation or God's will or God's intention for our communication. It's there when you slander someone, when you downplay their reputation in order to make yourself look better. Or when you make vague suggestions that would lead people to the wrong conclusions. All of that is is a form of crooked speech. Well, you know... I think that, that those two have an inappropriate relationship. Really? What do you think when you hear inappropriate relationship? You got that in your mind? Well, you start asking them questions. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean inappropriate relationship? Well, they just seem to be spending a lot of time together. Well, how so? How are they spending time together? Well, just, you know, when I, I see them often at church, or I see them in community group, and they're always talking to one another, and they're, they're just laughing and, and just seem to just have an inappropriate conversation between the two of them. Oh, really? they ever include anyone else in this conversation? Well, yeah, sometimes. What about her, her husband and his wife? Are they ever included in that? Well, yeah, yeah, sometimes. You see, as you get more and more specific, you realize, no, this is not an inappropriate relationship. And what you've done right there, in the vague words that you chose to use, you marred their character. You called them into question. So even in a fight against that, practically ask specific questions. When you hear things like that, don't jump to conclusions in your mind, friends. Our words were meant to give grace and life, as God's words do, not to tear down or to destroy. When we rip someone apart with our critical, unloving words, it's a form of crooked speech. This would also include what the Apostle Paul said in in Ephesians chapter 4 as unwholesome talk. What is unwholesome talk? Well, in the book War of Words, another Paul, Paul Tripp, explains that unwholesome talk is me centered talk that has no higher purpose than my own wants, desires, dreams, and demands. Unwholesome words flow from a heart that is controlled by present, personal, earthly desires. They are spoken because they please me and accomplish my goals. They are an attempt for me to get what I want without any reference to the Lordship of Christ or my call to speak as His ambassador. You see, our speech is crooked. Any time it distorts the truth, any time it puts me first, time it fails to, to acknowledge that I am the, an ambassador for my Lord Jesus Christ and I'm speaking on behalf of Him. Anything that goes against God's design for our communication, it's crooked speech. And friends, this is especially true when we're speaking of falsehood. This is why verse 17, we see that God hates a lying tongue and in verse 19, God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. I mean, think about that. Someone will take the stand and willfully lie to the destruction of truth and innocence. Somebody will stand up there and spew lies and see a man condemned. Do you not see the wickedness in that? Truth and trust are essential for unity. We cannot grow to maturity in Christ as a community if we are spewing lies to one another, if we're practicing falsehood. It destroys truth, it destroys goodness, it destroys righteousness and holiness and justice. Even the best judicial system in the world cannot function as it is meant to if people lie on the stand. Truth is essential. It's essential to God's ordering of all things. We cannot image him. We cannot be his people. We cannot grow in community towards maturity if crooked speech is present in our conversations. If it's there, it will sow discord and division. It will destroy when our words are meant to give life. Now friends, do you see why God calls it worthless? Worthless. But not only is his mouth crooked, he he also sows discord with his eyes. In verse 13, it says he winks with his eyes. Now, that word's a little difficult to translate. It it means to pinch off. So it could be wink or it could be squint. Have you ever noticed how all the bad guys in like movies or cartoons squint? You know, think about good, the bad, the ugly. You know, I can't whistle right now because my mouth's dry, you know. But you know, they're all like... You know, get that thing. Or, or kids, you know, in, in Monsters University, the reason why Randall squints and scowls is because he took his glasses off and he can't see very well, so he's like, you know. Bad guy, uh, it, it's a universal behavior. It's a universal sign of a devious behavior, a squinting of eyes. Proverbs 16, verse 30 puts it this way. Whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass but if it's not a squint, then it's, it's a wink. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't trust somebody who winks at me. I can't. I I don't. You start winking at me. I'm going to start judging you. It's a given. Okay. I know this guy and, and, and man, every time I get together and I have a conversation with him, one, I just, given his nature, given his character, I never really know if he's telling me the truth or at least not telling me everything that he's thinking or what's on his mind. I just don't know. It just seems like there's, there's sort of layers there. And then he winks at me. He's just like, you know what I'm saying? And he does like three or four times. And I'm like, no, I don't. I, I don't. I don't trust you. What are you saying? Are you trying to convince me that what you're saying is true? Is this your little tell that you've got more going on underneath, right? This is not endearing. Creepy, yes. Suspect, yes. But endearing, no. I mean, but in this case, it's a nonverbal gesture that communicates deception, right? Or or maybe it serves as a signal of some sinister plot. You know, we're kind of in this together and I'm winking at you to say, okay, let's go, let's do it. But that's not all that his eye communicates. In verse 17, it adds that the Lord hates haughty eyes. These are raised eyes, skewed eyes that view the world in terms of self. Haughty eyes judge the world in light of me, as if this is my world and I am God. These are proud eyes. These are arrogant eyes. These are eyes that think more, far more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Friends, when we are proud, we make much of ourselves. We view the world in terms of us. And when we make much of ourselves, we will inevitably deny the Lord's authority and the honor that belongs to other people. We will disregard them because we're elevating ourselves. We exalt ourselves and we minimize the God of the universe and every one of the 7 billion people alive on the planet, more if we consider those who have died before us. For arrogance, by definition, means to exalt yourself over another and to violate the fundamentally equal honor of each individual. There is no sharper opposition to wisdom and the fear of God than pride. And if you've been reading through proverbs a chapter a day as it corresponds to the day's date which i hope that you still are you see that proverbs has a whole lot to say about pride it's why it goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall it's why god hates it you have no reverence for him or for your fellow man if you are proud you will exalt yourself over another And you'll run them down in order to boost your own ego and to exalt yourself over another. And friends, that obviously will sow discord among brothers. So God hates it. With his feet, he signals or shuffles in verse 13. Perhaps as a sign of others of his sinful plan or or simply an indication of his restless soul. But in verse 18, we read that his feet make haste to run to evil. This is the true direction of his life. This is where he's actually heading. It's towards evil. Rather than actively pursuing God's wisdom and what is good, he is willfully and longingly moving himself one step after another toward evil. Now again, when we say evil. Evil is a perversion of what is good. Okay, evil's not just resigned to those really, really bad things like genocide or kidnapping or rape or terrorism. Evil is anything that is less than a distortion of the will and ways of God. It's like, it's putting your thoughts, your desires ahead of the good and wise God of the universe who made and sustains you and all things. And if our feet are moving away from God and his intentions for his community, that we're heading toward evil. and The result will be discord among brothers. With his hand, he points with his finger in verse 13. Again, perhaps this is a signal to others on your side of your plan against another person. Come on, let's get going. But perhaps you're pointing your finger in accusation or judgment. You are the one. You are the problem. Or maybe it's there in the secret whispers of one another as you put one hand over your mouth and you whisper about that person right over there. In verse 17, we see that their hands shed innocent blood, either by murder or simply by actions that will hurt or destroy the life of another who does not deserve it. What we see here is a person whose whole body, his hands, his feet, his eyes, his mouth, his whole being moving toward evil, moving against the will of God, moving against the good of others. But his character and behaviors are not the main issue there. They're only evidence of his core problem, his heart Verse 14 says, with a perverted heart, he devises evil. Verse 18, he has a heart that devises wicked plans. He has a perverted heart. His heart is crooked, it's misled, it's depraved. It longs and lives for things that run counter to God. Friends, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the core of who you are, your very inner being, your essence, your personality, all that is you that is not simply physical, that's your heart. Okay, so in, in terms of, it refers to your mind, right? Your thoughts, your plans, your judgments, your discernment. It refers to your will, your choices and actions. The heart refers to your affections, your longings, your desires, your passions, your dislikes, your imagination and feelings. It refers to your conscience, your sense of right and wrong. It's everything that makes up who you are. And everything you do comes out of who you are. It comes from your heart. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 7, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see, the real issue is not outside of you, it's not them, it's you, it's me, it's what's going on right in here. The reason for conflict and strife, the reason for quarreling and discord, the reason for dissension and division is not because of circumstances and situations. And if only those things were to change, then I'd be fine. Then I wouldn't be behaving this way. No, conflict and strife and discord and all of that, they are consequences of what's going on in your heart. These are heart issues. It's not because of that pastor or that church. It's not because of your spouse or those people over there. Fritz, they are not the ones that made you proud. They are not the ones that put that malice and bitterness in your hearts. You did. Conflict and discord is a heart issue. They are not the problem, at least not solely. The primary problem is your heart. People, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, friends, sins such as malice, quarreling, and strife are indicators of a perverted heart. A heart that sets its hope on and is pursuing something other than God. And if you are pursuing something in your relationships other than God, the effect on the community is evident from this passage. Verse 14 and verse 19, you will sow discord. Everything in the list of, you know, in verses 12 through 13 builds up to that perverted heart that continually sows discord. That whole six things in seven that you see in verses 16 through 19, that there is a poetic device that arrests our attention and leads. It builds up to a climax on that final primary issue. Now this is not an exhaustive list, but all of those previous six items feed into that last one. That last one is what is central. And so one of the reasons why God hates haughty eyes is that it sows discord among brothers. One of the reasons why God hates a lying tongue is that it sows discord among brothers. Same goes with hands and hearts and feet and false witness. It sows discord among brothers. But what God hates more than all six of those other things is the one who sows discord among his brothers. So that moves us from the description of the divisive person to his destiny. That according to verse 16, God hates him. This is not just a hatred of the discord itself, but of the one who sows it. It says, Dwayne Garrett said in his commentary on this passage, the person whose eyes, hands, Or, feet carry out such deeds, has a twisted soul, and thus grossly corrupts the image of God that should be recognizable in every human. He has a wicked and depraved heart, and God hates it. He is an abomination to the Lord, He's repugnant. Have you ever smelled something so foul, so gross, that it made you vomit? That gives you an idea of what an abomination is in the eyes of God. God hates discord with a passion. It is utterly repulsive to him. Now, wonder what you're thinking right now. We have this tendency to put God in a box. Well, God is love. And if God is, is love, then God has to love everyone universally, regardless of their nature, regardless of their sin, regardless of their hearts. How could God hate if God is love? Something's got to be wrong here. Well, friends, I did a quick search in the Old Testament where God himself says, I hate. Okay, this, that's, that's the limiting factor. I'm just looking for where God himself says, I hate. I found 20 passages. God hates false worship. God hates boastful evildoers. God hates wickedness, false ways, and double mindedness. God hates falsehood. God hates evil. God hates arrogance and perverted speech. God hates the worship of the wicked, robbery, and wrong. God hates rebellion. God hates pride. God hates devising evil, false oaths, and divorce. And those are just the times where God says himself, I hate. So how can a God who hates be love? Well, because it would be unloving of God not to punish sin. This is where we have to keep this in mind. I mean, just consider for yourself, think of the the people that you hold most dear in life. Say somebody captured them, tortured them, and killed them horribly. That person was caught, admitted to their guilt, and stood before the judge. And the judge says, I'm a loving judge. And because I'm loving, I'm just going to let you go. Would that be loving? Would that be loving to the one that he has sinned against? Would that be loving to the victims? Would that be loving to their families? Would that be loving to that sinner to, to allow sin to go unpunished? Would that be loving to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died to pay the penalty for that sin? The answer in all three of those questions is an obvious no. You see, God's hatred of these things is proper. God is unfailingly good. And because God is unfailingly good, he is wholly opposed to evil. His hatred of evil is part of his goodness. His righteous, holy character demands nothing less than a complete hatred of a sinner's heart. And if God did not hate sin, he would not be good. He would not be righteous. He would not be holy. He would not be just. He would not be loving. Praise God, that's not the end of it. And so God, by his nature, he not only hates sin, but he will rightly and justly punish the sinner. And verse 15 gives us a picture of what that looks like. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Because he tried to overthrow God's good order, the calamity that he has caused will fall upon his own head, and it will crush him, and the consequences will be irreversible. Nothing will be able to deliver him from this destruction. What he's speaking of here is his end, which is eternal death. That's what God will do with everyone who continues to sow discord, whether with a perverse heart or haughty eyes or a lying tongue or pointing fingers or feet that make haste to run to evil. That is the destiny of one who sows discord it is serious. Now we've seen the description and the destiny of the troublemaker, but before we move on, we need to discern the troublemaker among us. as I hope by now you see the seriousness of the offense that sowing discord truly is. And I pray that God has been His Holy Spirit has been just searching our hearts, revealing thoughts and attitudes and actions within your own heart that create strife. And he's leading you to repentance and faith. But friends, please do not minimize this. There's nothing safe or acceptable about it. Don't think to yourself, well, that is them, but it's not me. Friends, if you're thinking that way, That's pride and haughty eyes. You're already condemned. You've bought into your own lies from your own lying tongue and are self-deceived. So how have you shown tendencies towards sowing discord? Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of yourself more highly than you ought to think? To exalt yourself To talk down other people, especially around others, to make yourself look better in their eyes? Do you put yourself, your desires, your wants, your good before other people? Are you critical or judgmental towards others? Have you ever exaggerated or embellished to make yourself look better in the eyes of others? Or have you lied to protect yourself in some way from other people? When there's a disagreement or a problem, do you find yourself talking about someone else rather than going and talking to them? This happens so often. You've got this situation, the circumstance between me and you. It's this way, but instead of me going and talking to you, what I do is I start going over here and I talk over here. Well, you know, this person did this and this person did this. And what do you think about this and all of this? And, and it's, it can sound really, really righteous. You can pretend like you're asking for prayer or you're asking for help and knowing how to talk to this person about it. But you just keep talking. You keep talking and it stays here and it doesn't go there. Friends, that is gossip. Potentially slander. Have you ever tried to win people to your side? Have you led others to think less of someone else by slandering or, or sort of demeaning their reputation? Have you thought about ways to maybe get back at someone or to hurt someone, even if it's only played out in your mind? Like, oh, I'm never going to act on it, but you, know, you play out these scenarios in your head. Do you love others impartially or do you take sides? Do you whisper and point fingers at others? Do you tend to blame others to avoid taking personal responsibility? Do you tend to assume the best about yourself and the worst of everyone else? Do you harbor bitterness or malice toward another in your heart? Are you easily angered? Do you quickly move to quarreling and strife? Do you often find yourself at odds with other people? Do you separate and you move sort of from one group to the next because you can't seem to work things out and so you shift around from this place to that place to that place, never really working for reconciliation, never striving for peace and, and you let bridges burn from one place to the next. Friends, these are all indications of a heart of discord a heart that divides rather than strives to make peace. And if you realize this tendency within yourself, don't ignore it. Don't just pass it off. Don't just play like it'll go away. Turn away from them and to Christ. And this is so important as a church. How many churches fight and divide because they fail to see the discord in their own hearts? happens far too often. You know, when we've first taken that plank out of our own eyes, then we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brothers, always preferring, always seeking to work toward reconciliation. Now, at times, we need to deal with the troublemaker among us. Maybe we have to distance ourselves from divisive neighbors or, or co-workers. We must be careful not to become too close of friends with those who can have a negative effect on us. It's not that like, you know, if they're unbelievers, you're seeking, yeah, you seek develop relationships with them by all means, but don't bring them into your inner circle there if their pervert heart might lead you to the same types of depravity. As a church, we we must carefully and lovingly be willing to work through issues at times, and at times we may have to, just as we have done, remove the unrepentant person who stirs up strife from among us. But we do so in a way that, that lovingly warns them of the imminent dangers that are awaiting them and longs to restore that person in love. When we divide, we divide over what God's Word tells us that we should divide over, to guard against false teaching and false living, separating ourselves from the world, to be wholly devoted to God in purity and righteousness and truth, being in the world, but not being of the world. Now, we've just covered the text, and we can stop right there. But I think that if we did, we'd be so busy looking down upon ourselves that we would actually miss the hope of this passage. The hope is given in the broader context. And so now that we've discerned this one who sows discord, I want us to quickly look at the one who sows unity. Why does God care whether or not we are unified? Why can't we just quarrel and fight and disagree and divide and separate, just move and that be fine? Why on earth does it matter? Friends, it matters because God is the model of our unity. God is triune. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one perfectly united and indivisible nature. He is a tri-unity, perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect cooperation among each person, three in one, so that God is one. And we were made to image God, to display who he is with our lives together. In Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 the triune God says let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them what you see there is a corporate identity How do we, God's people, image the triune God, his three in one unity? Through our unity as God's people, as the body of Christ most specifically. Division, discord, animosity, and individualism. It tells lies about the nature of the triune God whose image we bear. But there's more. Not only is he the model for our unity, mankind was made for unity. Adam was not complete until a helper was made suitable for him. He explored every animal that existed out there. There was no helper that was suitable. And so God took a rib from his side and fashioned the woman and presented her to him. And when they were unified through the covenant bond of marriage, they became one and everything was very good. They were naked and without shame, completely united, completely intimate, no division, and not just with each other, but with God. They had complete unity as they faithfully lived within God's created order and purposes for their lives. But what happened? They rejected God. They tried to be like him. They tried to live their lives without him, to separate, to divide And their rebellion against him led to separation and discord, not just from him, but from each other as well. They hid from each other and they hid from God. They pointed the fingers at each other rather than pursuing peace. And as a consequence for their sin, God said to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. You are going to clamor. You are going to fight to get control. And he will rule over you by force. In other words, no longer will you live in harmony according to the roles that I have given you, but there will be discord between you. There will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. Sin brought hostility and discord into every single relationship we have. No matter how hard we try, we cannot fix what we have broken. Even when God delivered his people Israel, By his grace from slavery in Egypt. And he gave them his law so that he might dwell with them as their God and that they might dwell with each other in holiness and righteousness and truth and unity and love. They could not stop fighting against God and against each other. Though God's laws and his presence with them was good, it was not enough for them to be able to dwell in harmony. They continued to sin, they continued to divide until they were forced into exile and only a few hobbled home, broken and disillusioned. There's our efforts at unity right there. There's a whole lot of history just covered in a short amount of time. But in the goodness of God's wisdom and in the riches of his grace, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, God did what you and I could never do. He redeemed us. He restored us. He forgave us of all of the discord and hostility and animosity in our hearts. When we look upon the humiliating death of Christ on the cross, it humbles us in our sin. When we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, it delivered us from the lies of Satan and from our own sinful hearts. Through faith in Christ, we are transformed from hateful enemies to beloved children in God's one family. We were remade to image God once again, freed from the insatiable desire to exalt myself over God and everyone else. In him, we have been brought near. In him, we have been made one. In him, he's joining us together by the work of the Holy Spirit to be the one dwelling place of God. Christ destroyed the hostility in our hearts. And it's through the unity of the church That the wisdom and the power and the glory and the grace of God is shown forth to the entire cosmos. From the very first Christians throughout all history till all eternity. Through the church. Through our unity together When Christ returns, every wall of division and hostility will be removed and God's people will forever be one in his place under his rule and blessing. And so can you see why God hates discord? It goes against who he is. It goes against what he has done. He is the model for our unity that we are to image. And we were made and remade in Christ for unity. Those who sow discord pervert the image of God and they seek to destroy what God himself has made. It is satanic. It is utterly satanic. So God hates it. So what are we to do? Well, again, there's nowhere better to look than Ephesians chapter four. I should read verses 1 through 16. I should read the whole book, but I'll just read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying to us, be who you now are in Christ. Be who I made you and remade you to be. God has made us one. Therefore, let us maintain unity. Let us keep the good order, the unity that we have received from the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace that we now have in Jesus Christ. When we, the church, maintain unity as the body of Christ, guess what happens? People see Christ. They're going to have a hard time seeing Christ in you all by yourself, no matter how wonderful you are. But together, unified, they see Christ in us. But when we don't, when we're not unified, we bring reproach upon his name. Friends, God delights in unity. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Where God hates discord, God loves unity. He blesses the one who seeks what is good and what is humble and what is gracious and what is true. He delights when we fix our eyes on Him, when we use our tongues to speak the truth in love, to give grace and life to our ears, when our feet are swift to make peace and to bring forth the good news of Jesus Christ, and when we use our hands to lift up and to serve our fellow man. When our hearts are upright, seeking Him with our whole being and loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we we do that people see him and that's the point that's the goal his glory and our joy i was struck by a quote i found this week and i have no idea who wrote it but it says one man gets nothing but discord out of a piano another gets harmony No one claims the piano is at fault. Life is about the same. There's discord there, and there is harmony there. Study to play it correctly, and it will bring forth beauty. Play it falsely, and it will give forth ugliness. But life is not at fault, only the player. Friends, in light of all that we have seen, How is God calling you to sow unity? Are you pursuing unity within this church? What about in your home or in your workplace? Is there some conflict in your life that you've been trying to avoid or ignore? Let's just know that that is a divine opportunity. That's a gift that the Lord has given to you for your good, for your discipleship. It's a God-given situation for you to humbly and repentantly sow peace, to seek reconciliation by the grace of God. Is there sin in your life that you need to confess? Friends, confession sows unity. Is there someone you need to forgive? As God in Christ forgave you, forgiveness sows unity. Is there disagreement That you need to understand or clarify. Not necessarily anybody's in the wrong there, but you just need to, you're at odds and you need to bring clarity to the situation. Well, to pursue that, so is unity. Are there people you need to invest in? People you need to take the gospel to? Are there commitments that you need to make or ways that you just want to love others better? How can you edify your brothers and sisters in this church or those who you live with and and sow unity with encouraging, gracious, life-giving words, words that build up in love rather than destroy? Friends, let's let's not underestimate this. Let's sow unity together so that we can image God and the gospel, so that we can put Christ on display in our lives together, And others will see it. Now friends, I just have to say, I'm so thankful for the unity that the Lord has given us as a church. I am very, very grateful for that. But I think that just in examining our hearts just over the content that we've just seen, I think we could honestly say that we could do better. So let's pursue that together by the grace of God. After all, that is what he made us for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. But sometimes it's just befuddling and, and uh, shocking, just your intentions and purposes for us, and for our lives together. I'm guessing that, that many times we don't think about how important unity is. We just kind of go through life individuals just doing our own thing and we fail to think about imaging God and uh, our purposes for which you made us and to glorify Christ and the gospel comes as we live lives together in in peace and love and unity and truth God I pray that um, your word would be sweet to us that we would hold you in far higher regard than we ever have before that as we see your holiness and your good purposes for us more clearly that it would shine the light all the brighter upon our sin and the discord within our own hearts. And Lord, I pray that that would lead us to repentance and faith and find hope and freedom in life and a longing to display your goodness and your glory in our lives together. God, protect us as a church from discord. Help us to grow in love for each other and as a better image of you. God, we thank you that this is not possible by our own efforts, but it is possible because of the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. And it's in that power that we pray. Amen.